0: Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the Women in MedTech podcast. I'm Colleen Patterson, your host. Also, here today, we've got Barbara Strain, Stephanie Pitts, and Abby Norfleet. As we're continuing to talk about the Invisible Women book, Barbara has been sharing some absolutely fantastic resources, uh, some of which we'll be linking in for you guys, about other articles that are covering very similar information. The one that we're specifically also going to be referencing today is McKinsey Health Institute's Closing the Women's Health Gap, a $1 trillion opportunity to improve lives and economies. So one of the things that we found when reading both of both the book as well as this article is talking about the financial impact of what healthcare means of what women's equity means, of what inclusion should means. And one of the items that both really kind of reviewed is the idea that it's not generally malicious. No one set out to say, you know what I really feel like doing today, excluding women. But it is something that has happened and is a reality of the situation. And so although it wasn't deliberate or malicious, you know, how do you feel like that landscape has come to be, as well as what are the biggest opportunities we think in the short term to actually create some evolution or movement there?
1: Well, I think that you hit on the thing of evolution, because it goes back so far. I mean, we can probably look things up, you know, by the Egyptians and a variety of things, all the deities and all that kind of stuff. But I heard a really good interview on diversity so whether it was women or ethnic or whatever it was a great diversity discussion and when the moderator said do you think that this is being done deliberately they said all of them said no we think it's more psychological that it's somehow in their head and they don't realize it but it's happening that various uh, aspects of looking at people, uh, deciding how they're going to, we'll use in our case, go through health care because how they were trained, how they were lived at home, et cetera, et cetera, really informs things. And they don't maliciously say, well, I just don't care about these people. Because, you know, they're just complainers or they're just this and that. I just don't think it's done maliciously. And I thought that was a great answer to sort of help this discussion along.
0: So I think you've got some great points there. But one of the interesting aspects to me is the idea of, you know, how are women hidden? you know, in in order for people to come to be, they had a mother or they, you know, unless they're a test tube baby, like that one goat that, you know, popped out of the, there was a clone, but that's not the case. And so as we're talking about the evolution of history, as we're talking about, you know, the powers that be and how, you know, even going all the way back, the idea of it's, you know this, and I'm going to bring back actually a reference to one of the things that Stephanie has in her um, pediatric work for vascular access is children are not just little adults. Women are not just smaller men. So, you know, how is it that we got so far into the history of things like our medical research of our studies or the fact that period products were not actually tested on blood until the last year? You know, how did we get so far without Women actually being on the forefront.
2: I, I oh, sorry, I, sorry, Stephanie. Um, I um, we came off mute right at the same time, but okay. I I was struggling for my words too because I, I unfortunately missed the first part of what you were all discussing, the Invisible Women book, and I know I did go back and listen to it, and I. You know the default male was definitely referenced, and it, obviously it definitely goes back to that. I think you got to think in terms of it's the eye of the beholder, or mm-hmm. everybody's own perception is their reality. And so for so long it was the, the those that were kind of tasked or felt tasked or wanted to be in charge of developing these protocols or coming up with whatever innovation was going to be out there. It. I, I hate to say it, but I think the answer was is just as egotistical as that of, well, it's about me. So this is how I would want this to be, or this is how this would impact me in going down that path. Mm-hmm. So as I was reading through parts of that book, uh, it kind of reminded me of, and I know some of it comes from the uh, approach of trying to create more equality for women in the workplace and give them the ability to move up in the world. But when the state of California started requiring public companies of certain sizes to have a woman on their board, it's more than just creating that opportunity for them. It is being able to have that additional perspective of a woman, of somebody that has probably or at least been around and thinking in terms of motherhood. They may not be a mother but because they're a female, they're going to identify with their mother uh, and what they've done and being able to look at it from that different lens or that pr- different perspective or view. So I I hate to say it, but I think part of the answer to that is it could be just quite that simple.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Stephanie, you were going to add? Yeah,
3: I just to, you know. Just on that note, I think some of this is incredibly cultural and it actually starts when we're, we're little girls. So Mm -hmm. I was raised to be seen and, you know, I think most little girls are raised to be seen and not always heard. And so if, if you were chatty, like I was as a little girl, imagine that, um, I think my nickname when I was four was motor mouth. Um, so anybody listening to this podcast that, (laughs) that tells me motor mouth on, I'll know that you heard the secret, but but that wasn't okay. Right. You know, you're, 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 we were, I was, you're brought up. Most little girls are brought up to be seen and not heard. Now that translates, that translates into how we are as patients, Um, so we're not as vocal, um, to advocate, we're not always self-advocating, but it also translates into the workplace. Um, you know, we're, we're not always the ones that speak up. And when we speak up, we're not always heard in the same way, perhaps as our male counterparts. So I, I think, um, that's part of that. And so as a result, we're not always at the table, if you will, to make those decisions, um that do impact products and different things that ultimately impact women. So I think this is very cultural and it actually goes back to um uh, our society and how we raise our children from the beginning of time.
0: <laughs> I uh, that's such a great point. I remember a a pivotal piece of feedback, um, one of one of the things that still to this day, where I'm now I have have recently turned 40. So something from fourth grade. So more than 30 years ago, I remember a teacher, uh, called me bossy and am I bossy? Yeah, probably. But like, there are now moments where being who I am now, like living the life that I've lived, was I really bossy or am I assertive? And is it really that you're bossy or is it that you are occupying your space? Is it that you're bossy or is that you have a voice? And then going back, you know, even to what Abby said is one of the, I think the things that was really impactful to me in reading Um, the book itself was when they talked about the idea of quotas and that most people myself included have been brought up with the thought process of well if you're having to have quotas you're doing something wrong you know the cream should just naturally rise to the top but a really interesting fact about the book was that it talked about when you implement quotas you get better results you're getting those perspectives that you don't see you're getting more voices you're getting that mom saying well what about this uh that's not really going to work in this in this workspace so bringing um the next point back cuz this is something that both the article as well as the book covered was the idea of and specifically talking to us in healthcare and medtech is the idea of poor health of autoimmune conditions um the mckinsey article specifically states that a 25% more time women spend in poor health is relative to the men and so if we could just close some of that gap that's going to bring that some of those funds back 80% of autoimmune conditions are women and when you go back and you're looking at what's the studies where's the funding who gets the the pain relievers with their iud insertion not women but men that why like why is it do we think that some of this focus still today is on the idea of, well, yeah, a case study is great even if 70% of the people are men because we've already proven they're not the people making healthcare decisions. They're not the people who are spending most of the time in poor health. They're not the people who are living the longest and they're not the people making those decisions for the family unit. So um, what are some of our thoughts on those, on those items?
1: The thing of it is it, what I always tell folks that I'm working with is you have to have the voice of a customer. So you have to think through who's really going to be using these products and things. And shouldn't we be having conversations with all of these individuals? I mean, you bring up a lot of great points. I think what the McKinsey article was trying to get after by throwing out a big 1 trillion number mm-hmm. was the fact of it is there's sort of three parts to it. One is there aren't enough studies and things done that gives you the data so that then the poor health doesn't get addressed. So you've got two things going in there. So you're raising healthcare costs because this population is driving up costs, because there just isn't enough to tell the physicians and things, how do I really react? Mm -hmm. But then if those individuals were healthier, they could contribute those working dollars back into the economy. So this gap really exists. So you have to think about all those parts. So you have to attack each of those in its own way. And I think back to I had for 40 some years, I had debilitating migraine headaches Mm -hmm. that I couldn't work for days at a time every month. And so it was just awful and nobody could really do anything. So I would start looking through the literature and things. The problem with published literature is that if not everything people learn and know, they take the time to publish. But then you have these editorial boards that look through all these articles. What are they composed of and how are they looking at them to know they're doing the right populations? So there's a lot of things wrong, sort of breadcrumbs along the way.
2: So one of Barbara, I think what you're leading into is and what I found really interesting in the article that you sent us um, on the where the money is. And again, in this world to get by, you got to follow the money. What I found interesting is so that article was published in January of twenty twenty four. Uh, there was an article linked to that also by Mackenzie that I don't, I don't know if you all clicked on it or not, but it was in April of 2023, where it is looking at the data and gender gaps as well. And in that article, they also um, reference um, Caroline Perez's book, and basically is just saying in order for somebody to understand that that need exists, they need to actually understand that need themselves. Mm-hmm. And so and otherwise they need the data. And it's just pretty glaringly clear that the data hasn't been there until now. So even though we've just now started this, I mean, I think it's a stark reminder. I mean, women have been getting their periods for ever since we graced this earth and um, they just started testing our products on real blood a year ago. We're not just decades behind in some form or fashion, we're almost centuries behind. And so it's what does it take and what is it going to take to make sure that we try to catch up to that as quick as possible beyond just making sure that our voices are heard now, like Stephanie said. and We can feel heard sometimes and we can have that seat at the table, but what is actually being done to make sure that's being recognized?
0: I think that one of the things that was really disappointing to me was the part of the book that specifically talked about the fact that erectile dysfunction, dysfunction, which is a condition that affects approximately 19% of of men of that age, of a certain age, um, has all sorts of funding. You know, there's multiple medications that you can go today and be like, what do I have these? You don't need any testing. They're just like, cool, here's your prescription. (laughs) We want that one a day or do you want that on demand? Uh, You you get to talk about your choices. PMS affects 90% of all women uh, that have a period and that's pretty much 50% of all women. And people can't get funding for studies for that. So I do think that there is a larger underlying phenomena of, you know, you have to have the women on the board to be talking about these things. You have to have the representation there to have those discussions, but we've all talked about in the years that we've been in healthcare and med tech and between the four of us uh, it's, it's gotta be close to 150 years of experience sitting on this call that Barbara just made a hysterical face about that. Um, but When you're really looking at, we've all felt and seen the landscape change. We've all seen more representation at the C-suite level. We've seen more respect filtering up, but just like Abby said, we're hundreds of years behind when it comes to the actual science. So then as we're looking at, you know, the future of healthcare, the future of medical technology, the future of innovation, and even works that we're doing right now about diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, being able to see things in different colors of skin, there's still a lot of data that we're missing, especially when you're talking about the overlap of gender. And nationality, where you're seeing those two things combined, Um, Stephanie. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot because I know you're you're in the middle of a great big um, health equity push. How does your data collection specifically? uh, You know, is that something you guys are looking at, where you're you're capturing information or presenting it by both gender, as well as by you know ethnicity, nationality how How does that work, and are those things that you guys have been specifically attempting to do?
3: Colleen, um, you're you're uh, peeling off the bandaid here because
1: (laughs) when (laughs) when
3: the U.S. census struggles to accurately and to accurately collect um, demographic information and you leverage resources like that in your your research. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult, right? So think about that. Our U.S. census is really struggling with how they're correctly and accurately collecting demographics. So how are we expecting researchers to do that? Um, I will tell you our health equity research started out as we were trying to do a global uh, project and we quickly realized that that was way beyond um, our scope um, simply because um for example, the indigenous population, there's many different, um, groups just within, um, within the indigenous population. So to be able to accurately, um, collect that was very difficult, but yes, we spent a massive amount of time as a group of researchers truly just trying to make sure that we were collecting the demographics properly. I don't know if we nailed it it because, and I also feel like it's changing. It's, it's evolving. Um, so, um, So it's very, very, very tricky, but I'll tell you within the health equity um, research component, we as a group of researchers, we're in a little over a year on this. Um, We have learned and grown so much just in having these conversations with with the research group. And part of it is, I think it's really important when we talk about health equity, that we recognize that it's not just about black and white skin tone. Um, It's truly about Equitable care for everyone, and that means women, infants, children, uh, various socioeconomic status. um it, It's important to to realize that because I'll tell you, as a as a white woman, uh, one of the very early questions I had was, "Do I have the right to have these conversations?" And it's like, "Wait a minute, health equity applies to everyone." You know, I'm advocating for babies, and I'm advocating for my dark skinned babies who I knew were stuck more. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, yes, to answer your question, Colleen, the demographic piece, we actually had some very difficult questions uh, to work through um, to get to. But I'll tell you, we're beginning and we can't share the results yet. Obviously, we're working through the qualitative component of the research and the the outcome of this research is going to be very surprising. I think to all of us, we're, we're getting information that I don't think we imagined that we would. Um, but one other thing I will tell you, it's actually very difficult to do equitable research. Um, you think about the methods that we used, it was, uh, through social media, through digital campaigns, um, all of those things. And you know, the majority of your respondents don't represent the diversity that exists in our population. Not everybody trusts the survey. Um, So there's a lot to be, a lot to be learned
0: on, on that piece as well. I think that, uh, you know, going back to, to what you were just saying about, like, how do we even find the people? You know, everything that we're talking about here about what representation is, that talks about finding the people, finding the patients, identifying those. And if we're looking in the traditional sources, then there is definitely an aspect of that where we're looking for or we're speaking to a certain socioeconomic group. We're talking to the people who can afford the specialists who are not on potentially the, you know, the government subsidized plans and that you, or even, Hey, fill out this online survey. Some of our segments that are, have the most need that have the most requirements when you're talking about access to healthcare that are underrepresented in true service are those people that don't have smartphones that don't have you know whether that means that they're elderly or children or they are um you know in the socioeconomic you know poorer aspect of that access the de- the care delivery the information delivery matters so much on who we're talking to, and I will agree. Uh, as I'm, I come from a a, a place of privilege. And we did not grow up affluent at all, but I we are in the position now where I I have gone to specialists. I have been seen in a timely fashion. I have doctors who will sit down with me and talk for thirty minutes about my care and my case. My GI ran a a fundraising marathon with my name on her back. Those are exceptions, though, not the rule, though. And that is that kind of care delivery of how do we create that equity where everyone can have the same representation? Abby, it looked like you were going to say something. And if not, I totally just put you on the spot. Oh, to come
2: up with Yeah, that. no worries at all. Yeah. I mean, you were kind of starting to, you know, one of the things that I think has me really, really concerned is, Again, you know, we talk about having the woman's voice and, um, you know, there's a lot of innovation going this way. And of course, the big chatter now, and and I don't think we're actually going away from it at this point, is going to be AI mm-hmm. and how that is regulated, i.e. not regulated right now. And it's being put on those companies that are developing these technologies to come up with that. There's some really cool technology out there that I think will help fix some of this, um, the, the the disparities that we're seeing across different ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses and things like that, because data is data. One of the things that I'm super concerned about though, is it's still pulling data from years and decades ago, where a lot of it, even though we try to be objective as we can as providers, it's still subjective as to what's going in there. And there are personal Mm -hmm. biases that go into when you're putting that out there. I'm trying to remember i was I was listening to a podcast to somebody give an interview about mi- being misdiagnosed multiple times throughout her life and finally managed to get a a hold of her records. And in the records, it says, this patient continues to seem paranoid. Well, they missed a cancer diagnosis for three years. Mm-hmm. And it was that was written in her medical record. And so it's like, what is happening here, and what type of data is being pulled as this AI is being developed? So is it, you know, do we need to make sure we diversify boards more um, as we're bringing in women? What other things need to go into that as more of this innovation specific around technology that potentially is going to be a right hand tool in decision making?
0: There's lots of concerns with what you just said, Abby. Uh, You know, parts of, of Invisible Women talked about how AI does not represent women as much. Our pools no. of data are not representative of women. Our pools of data are most commonly representative of who? Our, mm-hmm. our white men. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about being able to use those or leverage those or be able to make faster analytical decisions, you know, it, it's, it's rubbish in and rubbish out. If we don't have those people represented, how can we accurately trust those? If even as far as if a clinician is sitting there dictating notes and the incidence rate of a women, a woman being misheard, and therefore the na- the notes being transcribed inaccurately for those patients. What's the real implication of that? And hey, this this patient is, uh, you know, they're they're making stuff up. They're you know they're they're hallucinating. They're they're you know suspicious. It doesn't make sense. Every caseworker after that gets to see that person's opinion, and that opinion now colors. All of the rest of that treatment. Mm-hmm. And if those are the type of things that we're making our AI off of, what does that really mean? It's frightening. Us? It's yeah. frightening.
3: Pauline, gonna, I want to I want to go back to something. I think everyone has said the word board um, in this in this call today. And I, I know we only have a few minutes remaining, but I yep. want to touch on boards for a minute. Okay. Um, I think you know, we're all in med tech. We all interact with boards in some aspects. Some of us sit on boards. Um mm-hmm. I think um I just want to I, I just want to hit on this topic because I think it's really important. And I hope some of our male counterparts in med tech are listening. But I have to tell you, when I see a company and their board is not does not represent diversity or represent the population that they will serve or have a member of the population they will serve, it is it's a huge red flag to me. So I'll give you an example. If there's if you have a med tech company that's developing um a product that's going to be used by nurses, um, specifically, I'll I'll just hit on my own, my own people, and you don't have a nurse on the board, that's a huge red flag to me. Um, If you have a board of, I'll just be honest, of all white men, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a concern for me because you're not, you're not understanding and, and, working with the diversity in which you need to be able to develop and launch a product to be understood. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to kind of hit that I know it's probably a very sensitive topic especially to some of my male counterparts but I I think it's really important that boards are designed properly and do have diversity and not token diversity. I don't want to see a board that you have your token female or your you know your token African American. I want to see a board that's properly set for talent Diversity to truly understand who they serve, um, and I—I I actually think it's a hot topic because I see a lot of boards, um, you know, a lot of companies, and I, I. One thing I do when I look at a company is I look at the diversity of their board just to understand who they represent, and and what their goals are, to be honest. And when I don't see the people they're serving represented, I get real worried.
0: My my favorite is when you're looking at that board and they tried to wrap up their diversity hire all into one person. And so it's a yeah. table full of of middle-aged white men. And you've got one female in a wheelchair who's a person of color. Where it's like how many how many boxes can we make this one or one token person check off? And I, I think that what you're saying is so true. I think that that's also goes back to I for this all the way back to what Barbara said about the voice of the customer of knowing your audience of representing them. Is you know one of the things that we do at the Clinician Exchange is we talk about voice of the customer experiences of who is it that's using your products. So let's make sure that they understand. And I cannot tell you how many times this is probably one of the very most common things that happens is we'll be talking about a product that is specifically used or utilized by nurses, and inevitably our client will say, "I want the doctor's input. <laughs> the doctor's not placed in an IV." Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know the last time I've had a doctor place an IV. Are they physically capable? Yeah, when's the last time that they really did it? So if we're talking about things like IV placement, why are you asking doctors? Mm-hmm. Why are you asking doctors? And that goes back to even what Abby was saying of what's your data looking like? Because if I'm we're asking the wrong people, we're asking the people that are overrepresented, not the people who are actually taking, you know, taking that first line of defense.
3: And Colleen, it's not about checking the box either. Yep. It's about making sure that the right, the right people are there that truly have the knowledge, the experience, and the diversity in thinking. It's not that's just the diversity right. yeah. in the outer shell. Yeah. You know, my view of the world is is different than others. Like it's it's really about the diversity in thinking. And when that's missed at a board level, you you really should should be concerned, right? Barbara, I think you were going to say something there.
1: Well, I was just going to say this right on. I mean, having grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 60s, talk about diversity. And we could talk about anything. And you you just had everybody at the table. You talked about stuff. And then we've gone through periods where we've gone back and forth about all of that. And. I think people sometimes choose either where they live or where they work based on, are they thinking exactly like me? It's, you've got to have that diversity of thought as well. And you said it really well, Stephanie, because it's not just, oh, we have to have, you know, a seat by three women or a seat by different ethnic groups or whatever. That whole thought process about what is the purpose of the, you know, the university or the manufacturer board or politics or what? what's the purpose and who how can you bring people together to help serve that purpose because I've served on some community boards where I was the only woman on a huge sports board I had to travel to go to it and everything and boy I got cut down right and left and I wasn't gonna I knew as much about the sport as they did, but it was frustrating because I was just sort of discounted. Like, you really don't know, you know, you haven't been out there sweating with the rest of us and stuff, Mm -hmm. you know. But anyway, that's the really key point that I was really trying to make. And I think we have a good theme throughout here is that you have to know and have thoughts that can bring in so many different things, because somebody can say one thing and everybody looks at him and said, oh, my goodness, we didn't even think about that. And it could mean the difference between a really great outcome for a company or a university or a community board or whatever to have those voices. Great point.
2: So, maybe think- the challenge is that, you know, if they're checking the box on thinking that their board is diversified. And again, if it's wrapped up in one person, or let's mm-hmm. say maybe it's not, but they still check the box on a certain number of things to quote unquote hold themselves accountable. Maybe the challenge is well, why don't you do a self internal audit and really see are you achieving the goals that you meant to achieve by when you finally quote unquote diversified your board? Or are you still having the same challenges and, and cycles of challenges that you had 10 years ago before you did this? And if so, maybe you're not effectively using those individuals or you're truly using it as a checkbox and need to re-evaluate how those, those positions are being filled and truly utilized and what their voices are carrying.
0: Mm-hmm. Abby, I love that for our closing thought for today. And the mm-hmm. one thing I'm gonna add is that anytime that you're talking about self audit, That's a moment of hard truth that's really not just giving ourselves the pat on the back of, Hey, we're doing great. Um, although the women in mid tech podcast does have a higher listenership rate than the, than the, the men's section of it. Just saying, um, but really she had looking, to get
3: that in there. <laughs> I totally
0: did. I was snuck it in. Um, it's really also talking about, are we serving who we need to serve Is the representation there? Are we discussing topics that are resonating with people? So the same way that we check in on, you know, do we think that this makes sense for for what we're trying to achieve? Board should be doing the same thing and asking the hard questions of, you know, do we really represent our patient population like Stephanie suggested, you know, what what Abby said of are we really addressing the needs or did we just fill in some token hires and looking at everything should be on the table. So if you are in one of those positions where you have the ability to inflict some of that change or an audit on your side from the med tech perspective, we definitely encourage you. Um, I thank you guys all so much for for our great conversation today, as well as tuning in. If you have not already subscribed, be sure to do so for future Women in MedTech content. And we are really excited to continue down the story of what health equity could and should be.
1: Thank you all.